0: What would you do if you knew you only had 40 days to live? Maybe you'd want to spend all your time with friends, family. I have some parties. Laugh together in good company. Maybe you'd think it's time to break out the bucket list. You know, what's... What are some of the things I I want to be sure I do? Maybe it's visiting another country, going skydiving, bungee dumping. I don't know if we actually have bucket lists with those things on them or not. Well, Jonah told the Ninevites that they had only 40 days to live. As we saw last week, he went all throughout Nineveh, that great city, proclaiming, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So they have 40 days before destruction. And how do they spend it? They don't call for a party. They don't break out their bucket lists. They didn't say, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people of Nineveh received the words of the prophet Jonah, not just as the words of some crazy foreigner from some other nation wandering through their streets, but they received his words as the words of God. They believed God, and then they called for a fast and donned the garments of mourning. That's how they spent what, for all they were told, was their last 40 days, lamenting their sin, fasting, and calling out to God. Now, before we move into verses 6 through 10, which we did not cover last time, let's reconsider for a moment Jonah's message to the Ninevites back in verse uh back in verse four. Jonah's message to the Ninevites recalls other portions of scripture. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. To be overthrown is used numerous times to describe the overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Nineveh's evil, like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, is described as rising up before the eyes of the Lord. And as the Lord acted to annihilate those cities with fire and brimstone from heaven, so also he will wipe out Nineveh. The period of 40 days, yet 40 days, might remind us of the flood narrative, in which a flood of judgment came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Like the earth before the flood, Nineveh has become full of violence and wickedness. As every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually before the flood. So also the prophet Nahum asks of the city of Nineveh in Nahum 3.19, upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. As God brought a cataclysmic flood upon the world, so also the waters of his judgment are going to fall on Nineveh, wiping out everything. And yet there are glimmers of hope in Jonah's pronouncement as well. There's another significant period of 40 days in the Bible associated with God's judgment. And it is the 40 days Moses spent on top of Mount Sinai fasting and praying, interceding for the people of Israel after they built the golden calf. That passage in Exodus also recalls the flood narrative. The Lord becomes so angry that he says he will wipe out the whole people of Israel and start again with Moses, just like he did in the flood, wiping out everybody on earth and starting over with Noah. But then a new 40 days come and Moses pleads with the Lord for 40 days on Mount Sinai for the Lord's mercy. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain and that leads to Israel's deliverance. So too, the people of Nineveh might fast and call upon God for mercy. One more glimmer of hope is in the verb that is translated to be overthrown. We already noted that takes us back to Genesis 18 and 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. But this verb is a little bit ambiguous because it literally means to turn, to turn over, or to turn back. It's used in a variety of settings. Sometimes it's used to describe the overturning of cities as an act of destruction, as they're turned upside down by judgment and totally destroyed. And that would be probably the first most natural meaning of this verb here. But it's also possible to be used to say Nineveh will be overturned, morally speaking, that they might be turned back, turned around, reformed. And as we read on, we will see that Nineveh indeed was overturned. The world was turned upside down in Nineveh. But it was not the overturning of utter destruction. In verse 5, the people of Nineveh call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, young or old, high or low class. All these things did not matter anymore. Because none of those things are going to prevent you from facing this threat of destruction from God. All of them wore the same sackcloth and fasted. See, when we are humbled for our sins and imagine ourselves coming before the face of God to give an account, all these earthly distinctions just pass away. It becomes clear that we are all human. We are all united in the same human nature and share the same basic plight and the same hope of mercy. The fast begins with the people. Note that in verse 6, or rather in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast. The people who hear Jonah call for the fast and subsequently the word reaches the king. It seems the word spread among the people so fast and the response to it was so instantaneous that Jonah himself hadn't even arrived To tell the king personally yet. Because verse 6 says the word reached the king. Which is not what we would expect if Jonah himself went to the king. So what does the king do? Verse 6. He arose from his throne. Removed his robe. Covered himself with sackcloth. And sat in ashes. This response from an Assyrian king is shocking. Assyrian kings weren't exactly known in the ancient world for their humility. Again, Assyria was a fierce nation known for their cruelty in battle and towards those they conquered. Here's a quote from Adad Nirari II, who was king of Assyria a couple hundred years before Jonah. We have this from an inscription. King Adad the II, I am royal, I am lordly, I am mighty, I am honored, I am exalted, I am glorified, I am powerful, I am all-powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion-brave, I am manly, I am supreme, I am noble. And yet when the king gets word that the people are repenting at the preaching of a wandering prophet from another country, the king responds immediately in humility. He rises from his throne and goes down off his throne. In chapter one, Jonah journeyed downward, but that was in defiance from the word of the Lord. As he went down to Tarshish, down into the boat, down into the uttermost part of the boat, down into the ocean, He, he went down but he was going away from the Lord. Here, the king of Nineveh comes down. He goes downward off his throne, but he does this in submission to the word of the Lord. The king journeys downward in humble submission. He gets off his throne, takes off his, his royal robes and exchanges them for something else, sackcloth. And he sits Not back on the throne again, but on the ground in ashes. He humbles himself along with all the rest of his people. And it's only after humbling himself and setting that example of repentance that he then issues a proclamation for all of Nineveh to follow suit. The fast already indeed had begun among the people and the king received word of it but now the king makes it official and he enjoins the whole city by royal decree everyone must do this his proclamation is found in verses seven to nine by the decree of the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to god Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. One of the remarkable things about this proclamation you may have noticed is that he not only extends it to all of Nineveh, but he also includes the animals. Not only do their cattle and livestock Join in on the fast. He even tells them to cover them with sackcloth as well. For the purpose that both man and beast may call out mightily to God. You ever been walking in the park and you see someone with a dog and they're in a little coat or jacket, you know, like a human would wear? What's well, like that, but the dog's in sackcloth along with the, the human, the inclusion of animals is an intriguing feature. And again, it, it might take us back, along with the 40 days of you know, judgment, to the flood narrative, which was a judgment not just on the human world, but on the animal world as well. And as God saved a few human persons from that judgment, so also he saves a pair of each kind of animal in the flood as well. The truth is, the whole of creation is impacted by man's sin and is also implicated in Christ's redemption. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul says that all of creation groans together to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the glorious freedom of the children of God. Jesus will one day restore all things in heaven and on earth, and he will raise up his people, the sons of God, to reign and rule forever with him, And when that happens, he will put everything back into harmony, which was disrupted and destroyed by sin. Even the natural world, which was cursed, will be made new. The inclusion of animals also serves to further underscore the people's plea for repentance. It's not just human cries for mercy that go up to the Lord, but also cries from the cattle and the livestock as well whose cries for food and water we are, we are assured are indeed heard by the Lord of hosts. The Psalms note that the Lord cares for all the creatures he has made. He provides food for the beasts and the ravens and hears their cries. So even if he won't hear the Ninevites' cries, since they're so great sinners, they reason, perhaps he'll at least hear the cries of these animals and have mercy on us. This further underscores the humility of the people of Nineveh. The king goes on to call all of the people of Nineveh to repentance. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. The king acknowledges here that uh, merely fasting and putting on garments of mourning and adopting postures of mourning, like sitting on the ground in ashes, all of this is not enough where the heart is not truly repentant there must be not merely a fast not merely a wearing of sackcloth sitting in ashes but there must be a heart rending the prophet joel says rend your hearts and not your garments the king realizes this in calling everyone to turn from their wicked ways and from their violence in particular Nineveh, the great city of a nation known for its cruelty, is being called to put away their violence and instead to walk in the way of peace. Note, he does not just call them to repent of their evil way. Let let everyone repent of their evil. But he singles out one of their particular great sins that they need to deal with, violence. It is well with us. When we confess our sins, that we confess them not just in a generic way, but particularly. What are our own particular sins that we need to confess to the Lord? The king ends his proclamation with a note of hope. Who knows? God may, re- God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Again, remarkably, the king is demonstrating a lot of humility here. Uh, He's acknowledging God does not owe them this deliverance. There's nothing automatic about what they're doing here. He knows that they deserve it and that their fasting and prayers and sackcloth do not force God to change. God is free to give it or not give it as he sees fit. But the king holds on to the hope that perhaps God will turn from his anger and they won't perish. The king's words here might remind us of the sea captain from chapter 1. Remember the pagan sea captain? He or just Jonah, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So also here, the king of Nineveh calls on everyone to call out mightily to God and says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And as the Lord has mercy on the sailors in chapter 1 who call upon him, so he has mercy on the Ninevites, as verse 10 says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do for them. And he did not do it. As Nineveh turned from their wickedness, so the Lord turned from his wrath. This does not show any inconstancy on God's part. The fact that he threatened judgment and then when repentance happened, withheld the judgment. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 18 verses 7 through 10, If at any time, this is the Lord talking, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do for it. There's not a change in God, but there's a change in man. <laughs> there's a change in man. Is there repentance or is there obstinacy? In this chapter, Nineveh demonstrates an exemplary response to prophesied judgment, humility, Acknowledging of wrongdoing, calling out mightily to God. And this is instructive for us. What do you do if you've sinned against God and you hear God's judgment thundering against you in your heart, in your conscience? You could try to run. So Jonah did, he ran. Or you could try to deny it and downplay that you've really sinned. There's an exception for you. Somehow you're actually in the right on this one. Or you could make uh, excuses. Yeah, it was wrong, but, 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 but this and, and that, and but this and that, and, 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 and I'm not so bad. Or you could despair. You could say, I know I've done wrong. And I do feel pretty bad about that, and, but there's nothing I can do. God pronounced his judgment, and I deserve it. There's no hope for me. There's nothing I can do. Just resigned. Despair could look slightly different than that. It could say, I know this is wrong and that God hates it, but I can't stop it. I can't give this up. So why even try? I resign myself to whatever's coming. Any number of these responses are what we may give and at times do give when we hear God's judgment thunder out in our conscience because of our sin. But what do the Ninevites do? They call for a fast, put on sackcloth. The king arises from his throne, takes off his robes, dons the garments of mourning, and sits in ashes. The people make themselves low. They acknowledge their sin. They express contrition in an acknowledgement that they deserve judgment. And that's step one that's vital. Don't forget step two. They call out mightily to God. They cling to the hope that maybe, just maybe, God might show mercy. Who knows? king says that perhaps this judgment pronounced against them has an asterisk to it there's a footnote on this unless you repent i think this is further evidence that jonah was just proclaiming god's judgment against nineveh and he was not proclaiming some fuller message in which he was promising them that they could get out of this by repenting because the king says who knows maybe God will be merciful. He was not assured that God would be, but he and his people took their hope on the chance that he might be. And that is incredible. Brothers and sisters, how little cause do we have to despair, we who have much greater revelation than this? We have more to go off of than in 40 days, you're dead. We have assurance of God's mercy to us in Christ. One interpreter has pointed out that in the actions of the king's humility, we can see a parallel to the eternal son of God. The divine son was enthroned in glory, equal to the father. And yet when he saw the plight that the world was in. The judgment that his people were headed for. He rose from that throne. Took off the robes of his glory. And took on himself the likeness of sinful flesh. Humbling himself. Bringing himself even lower. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. His body was laid down in the grave. Dust to dust. Ashes to ashes. And why did he do this? For his own sin, so that he might receive mercy? No, for our sin, that we might receive mercy. This is the hope and assurance that we have. If we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because the Lord Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your mercy, that, uh, that you are not a God who delights in uh, showing wrath, who delights to punish, but Lord, you abound in steadfast love and mercy to all who call upon you. I pray that you would grant us the grace to call upon you, knowing that you abound in riches towards all who do so. May we be encouraged to do this by the knowledge of the fact that you've already given your own son to die for our sins. So may we ever come to you in repentance and in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.